chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. There's a great work to be done ahead of us as a congregation, as a church. There is a great work that I believe God is in the process of entrusting us to. I believe over the last uh, 10 months that we've actually been meeting here in this building, we've been through a time of testing, time of patience, where God has checked out our hearts, our loyalty, our faithfulness and commitment. And I really believe that God is pleased. Amen. Amen. I believe He's pleased. I think He knows we mean business. That we haven't jumped off the bandwagon. That we're here for the long haul. And we've demonstrated it and we've proved it to the Lord. Which means my conviction is that we have demonstrated to the Lord that we can be trusted with the future. The future is big. My mind and heart is so full of so many things. How are we going to get all of this done? There's so much, so much potential. So many things I can envision and see happening and people being raised up in a variety of different ministries and outreach and may the spirit of salvation be released even more. You know, to have repeats of this morning all the time. And uh, missions I see going all just all everywhere. I just, whew, it's massive. It's huge. It's it's what a privilege to be trusted by the Lord. You know, before the Lord trusts, He first tests. There's a in First Thessalonians two five. It is Paul says we behave as people that God has tested so he can trust. And it's my conviction when I sense in my heart that God sees that we can be trusted. And there it means he's going to impart vision and impart strategy and impart things to us and open the doors and make things possible for us that would not be the case if he didn't think he could trust us. But I have this conviction that he says, okay, pass the test, we can be trusted. That's an awesome privilege and honor, but it's also an awesome responsibility. The work is great. It really is. As I know of different burdens of different individuals in the congregation, I probably know more than anybody, I suppose, about some of the deep desires that are in everybody's hearts and I would know it more than you would know it what's in other people and uh, boy, let's, let's release all of it let's just release the whole thing every gift every ministry every God given desire let's release them all it's my heart's desire you haven't come to church to support one person who's in the ministry it's the other way around this one person in the ministry is here to support Everybody else in ministry. We're here to equip you to be released in the burdens that God has given you. That's more biblical. It's more biblical. 
And uh, there's a great work to be done. But here's a question. A great work to be done. Who can God use? Can God really use you and really use me? Is that really possible? After all, who are we? What do we know? I should see all the mistakes we've made in life. Doesn't that disqualify us? All the mistakes... We've made in our lives, we made some real blunders that we kind of, well, that's just us on the shelf now for the rest of our lives. Who can God use? Genesis 47, starting in verse 7. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father. Who did Joseph bring in? What's his name? When you hear the name Jacob, can you just tell me what's the first thing that comes to your head? I mean, there could be a lot of things. That, when I say Jacob, what pops into your mind? <laughs> Besides that. <laughs> Israel wrestled with God. Deceiver. Anything else? Jacob's ladder. I mean, there's a rich history to this man named Jacob. The Bible speaks much of him. It says, Joseph. Now, who's Joseph at this point of the story? Where is he? He has been appointed prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world. There is nobody in the entire world that contains more power than Joseph except Pharaoh. There's nobody else in the world. There's no other king in the world. No other prince in the world that can rival the power that Joseph has. He is the second most powerful man outside of Pharaoh in the world. Of course, that's a picture. This is another sermon. That's a picture of Jesus Christ after being betrayed by his brothers, after being wrongfully imprisoned, unjustly dealt with, has come out of that and he's been exalted and only God the Father is greater than him. This is a picture of Jesus perhaps, but that's another sermon. Joseph, the second most powerful influential man in the world, brings in Jacob, schemer. Bit of a monster to deal with at times. Liar. Stole birthright. Messed up his marriage. Terrible father. Brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. Now listen to this. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Please note what it does not say. It does not say, and Pharaoh blessed Jacob. Who blessed who? And Jacob, the one who made a mess out of his life, is the one who gives the blessing to, without doubt, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time in history. Wow. Now, Pharaoh's looking at this Jacob, and 
He sees how Jacob walked, because you remember he walked with a limp? You remember that? Because he had this wrestling match at the age of 90, which was four decades ago. At the age of 90, this wrestling match with an angel, and he lost, and he won it all at the same time. But physically, he became lame the rest of his life. And Hebrews 11 has to describe Jacob as a man who worshipped leaning on his staff. He had to lean on it because he was out of joint. For four decades, the man's walked with a limp. It looks old. Pharaoh looks at this guy and he says, How old are you? Now, I was told it was never polite to ask somebody their age. <laughs> but Pharaoh looks at Jacob. And obviously, Jacob must show his years. Maybe the pain of life is etched in his face. Maybe the hard, bitter experiences of life has taken its toll on him. And he looks old. How old are you? Verse 9, it says, And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage. I like the way he says that. He doesn't say the years, but he says the days of my years. Which means he felt every one of those days. That life had gone by one day at a time. And each day of his life probably had a story to tell. And for the last 22 years especially, every day had brought a sad tale to tell about Jacob. His whole family was in disarray. But he says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are... 130. I don't know anybody who lives that long anymore. 130. And then he describes what those days are like. Listen to his description of his life. Few. Well, I guess compared to Methuselah, that'd be few. Compared to Adam, Enoch, those would be few, but few. But it's not the word few I'm after, it's the next description he says concerning his life. Few and evil. He looks back on the years of his life knowing some of the decisions he made. How many know it's not good to steal from your twin brother? How many know you're getting yourself into trouble? He said, I look back on my life as just problem after problem, and I probably caused them all by my behavior. Few, but all of them, evil. Evil have been the days of the years of my life. Not just my years, but every day. I've struggled with consequences of choices that I've made. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life being But compared to my fathers, it says, And I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. 130 might seem like a lot, but it's nothing compared to Noah, Enoch, Adam, Seth. Nothing compared to them. And then verse 10, as Jacob exits the presence of Pharaoh, it says, for a second time and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before
Pharaoh. It doesn't say it once, but it says it twice. That Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Once when he went in, once when he went out. Did you read anywhere in there that Pharaoh blessed Jacob? Do you read that anywhere in there? No, it's not there. Now I have a question for you. Who gets to bless who? If you're going to bless me and confer upon me a blessing, then the assumption is that you must be more powerful than me. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7, we don't need to turn there, but the author of Hebrews has a discussion about this guy named Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. Melchizedek and Abraham, and the writer of Hebrews makes a great deal of this fact that it was Melchizedek that blessed Abraham. It is not Abraham that blessed Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7, verse 7 says, Without all contradiction, the less is blessed by the greater. The less is blessed by the greater. Now, you and I, as the lesser, can bless the Lord, but I can't add add anything to Him. I can't add any power to Him, can I? I can show Him my gratitude. I can show Him my praise, my worship, my appreciation, but I certainly can't add to His power. He's all-powerful. In that sense, I can't bless God. I can't give Him something He doesn't already have on His own. But outside of that kind of thinking, it takes the greater to bless the lesser. Now that's true. And if I read not once but twice that Jacob is the one who blessed Pharaoh, of the two, Jacob or Pharaoh, who's the greater? I want you to think about it because there's a powerful lesson here. Of the two, Jacob or Pharaoh, who's the greater? Are you scared to give me a wrong answer? (laughs) Am I setting you up here? No, I'm not setting you up. It is Jacob who is greater than Pharaoh. So I'm going to ask the question, because according to everything I can see with my natural eyes, that's not a true statement. What I can see with my natural eyes is a contradiction here. But listen, things are not what they appear. Amen. Things are not what they appear. Where did Jacob get the power to bless a man named Pharaoh? I want you to look at his life, Jacob. Just recall a few incidents from his life, Jacob. If there was an award called Dysfunctional Family of the Year, I think I would award it to Jacob. Anybody who would have 12 sons and one daughter with four different women living under the same roof is crazy. (laughs) Anybody who would marry one woman and want to get married to another one at the same time 
might be a little difficult. Especially if those two women happen to be sisters who don't get along with each other. If there's ever a recipe for family disaster, it's got to be Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? The guy has betrayed his own twin brother. Who would do that to their brother? Who would steal the birthright from a twin, not just a brother, a twin brother? You guys were born on the same day. You grew up together. You shared the same crib, probably. Played together your whole life growing up. And you turn around and betray your twin brother you grew up with. Every day you, you were with this brother and you betray him. Then you've got to run for your life. How many of you know that's disastrous? How to fracture your family? I mean, Isaac, Father Isaac, he was a bit of a soft touch. Jacob's mom, Rebecca, I know where he learned his scheming from. I mean, his mother was good at it. She knew how to manipulate Isaac very well, and she had passed the skill on to her favorite son, because, you see, Isaac had a favorite son named Esau, and Rebecca had a favorite son named Jacob, and they made favorites of these, and they pitted them against each other. It was just terrible. And this Jacob steals the birthright. From Esau. Now Esau's not innocent. He despised his birthright. He didn't appreciate it. He let it go for a meal. But he lost it. But you know what? It put murder in his heart. And your own twin brother wants you dead. And you've got to run for your life. And Jacob's on the run for what? Some 20 years now. A long time. And he goes and he has to leave his family. He has to go into a far land where he... He meets Rachel, falls in love with Rachel. But he has to meet Laban too. And Laban is as much as a schemer and a liar as Jacob is. You know, iron sharpens iron. Better you know, be careful what you deal out because you're going to get it dealt to you. And, and they're into this match of wits, Jacob and, and Laban. And Can you just imagine, when I get to heaven, I have questions that I'm going to ask a few people. I want to ask Jacob a question. Jacob, how long did you serve Laban to get Rachel's hand in marriage? Seven years. And it seemed like nothing because you were so in love with her, right? Oh, they went by so fast. So, Jacob, could you explain to me how on your wedding night you haven't got a clue who you're with (laughs) until the next morning. Were you stone drunk or what? How could you not possibly know this isn't the one you loved and panted for for seven years? And then he's deceived by Laban. He's got to work another seven years. Few and evil have the days of my years been, he says. And after 14 long years, he gets Rachel as well. But the problem is Rachel can't get pregnant. He's not interested in children by Leah because he hates her. He doesn't really love her. He tricked into marrying her. He doesn't really want her. But God has closed the womb of Rachel. And you know what? Leah starts having children. There's Reuben. 
then there's Simeon, then there's Levi, then there's Judah, and the score is 4 nothing for Leah. Well, Rachel sees this. She says, I'm going to cheat. She says, take my handmaiden. Have children by her. And so Rachel's handmaidens start having children on her behalf. And then when Leah sees that, says, well, I'm good. here's my handmaiden. And he throws her handmaiden in here. And this goes on and on like this. And then finally, after ten sons are born, Rachel finally bears one named Joseph. And after that, bears one named Benjamin. But here's the heart. Few and evil have my days been. Because when Benjamin is born, Rachel dies in childbirth, in late reigns. Now, Jacob doesn't care for his ten older sons. They don't exist as far as he's concerned. He loves Joseph, the son of his beloved wife. Talk about a recipe for disaster. I mean, dysfunctional family of the year. And his ten sons, those ten older sons, they're murderers. Read about them in Genesis 34. Especially Simeon and Levi. Murderers. Reuben, the oldest, is an adulterer. They're all liars. All ten of them are liars because they've kept the secret from Jacob for 22 years. Family secrets. Skeletons in the closet. What a dysfunctional family. What a man who has made major mistakes when it comes to marriage, major mistakes when it comes to raising children, major mistakes. How can God possibly use somebody like that? How is that possible? Surely that person is is disqualified from being used of the Lord. His family, his marriage, it was terrible. His father image was terrible. What about his health? Well, he must have been a strong man because at the age of 90, he could wrestle all night long. But he lost physically the wrestling match. And his hip goes out of joint because the angel said, the sun's coming up. Enough of this. I'm out of here. You're letting go of me and whops him in the side and that's it for life. And the rest of his life he walks with a limp. And that's him for the rest of his life. So he has a physical disadvantage from which he's never healed. How can God use somebody who lives with sickness in their body and never healed? Surely they must be a bad testimony. God can't use them. What kind of a home did Jacob live in? Now, I I assume he was a wealthy man because old Grandpa Abraham was very wealthy. I mean, anybody who has 318 servants in Genesis 15 has got to be a pretty wealthy man. Wealthy man passed it on to Isaac who passes it on to to Jacob. Um, But as wealthy as he was, I doubt that his wealth came anywhere close to Pharaoh's wealth. Of the two men, Pharaoh or Jacob, who do you think had the greater wealth? Now, maybe Jacob was independently wealthy, but hey, when you're the king of the country, 
in recent history, I just heard down Zimbabwe where I'm going, the president there just had his 90th birthday. He only spent one million U.S. dollars on a birthday party. You're independently wealthy. You know, I don't think when it comes to comparison on that way that Jacob wins that one. What kind of a home did Jacob live in? The Bible says very clearly that he lived in a tent. A tent that has no foundations. I am sure that Pharaoh did not live in a tent. I am sure that king of Egypt had palaces that you and I can't even comprehend or understand. Sometimes I've been privileged in my travels to see some of these wealthy, wealthy places and I just can't get it. Some of the wealth, you know, these skyscrapers of buildings and you go in there and the taps in the bathrooms are made of gold. I can't even begin to comprehend such a waste. But wealth, I mean, I mean, Pharaoh is a man of wealth. Jacob probably had a good number of servants. But Pharaoh's got an entire army. Most powerful army in the world. So everything that I can see from the, my, my natural eyes doesn't tell me that Jacob has got any power to bless anybody. He certainly hasn't got the power to bless Pharaoh because morally he has failed. In family life, he has failed. In health issues, he has failed. Can anybody identify with Jacob? The man has failed in many, many ways. And yet, in spite of all of these stories that you and I know about Jacob, it says that he went into the presence of Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And when he left, it says the second time, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not once, but twice he did this. A blessing coming in and a blessing going out. But who is this man who can bless Pharaoh? Who's blown it in life? Whose heart aches because his wife is dead? Who raised murderers and adulterers and liars for children? Who is plagued with bad health for the rest of his life? Who is this that can bless Pharaoh? Now, there's a secret here, and this is what I'm going to get at. Because you and I are about to receive a mandate from the Lord. Over this next year, I think it's going to come fast and furious of things that God's going to open up and the potential. And we have to understand that it's all going to take faith. It's all going to require stretch for all of us to do things we've never done before. To stretch our faith is going to take uh, and having to look inside our heart to see how, how committed we are to these things that God wants us to do. There's a lot to be done. Who can God use? Who can God use in this? There's a secret 
to why Jacob could bless Pharaoh. And it's found in verse 9, where he says it not once, but he says it twice. And here's the key to faith, and here's the key to being a blessing. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my, and here's the word, my pilgrimage. He called himself a pilgrim. Now that's the key. He called himself a pilgrim. And then at the end of this verse, he refers to his fathers before him, and he says, in the days of their pilgrimage. I'm a pilgrim, and my father before him was a pilgrim, and my father's father was a pilgrim. This is Jacob talking. That means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all recognize themselves as pilgrims. If you would flip back with me to Genesis chapter 23, at an incident earlier in the life of Abraham, when his beloved Sarah finally passes away, he needs a place to bury her. Now, this is interesting. As wealthy as a man he is, he's got nowhere to bury his dead. And so he begins to negotiate with some people of the land for a burial place. But look what he says, and here's the words of Abraham in chapter 23 and verse number 4. He says this, I am a stranger, and I am a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I might bury my dead out of my sight. He has to negotiate. They say, no, I'll just give it for free. He says, no, I won't do that. I need to pay for it. And they strike a deal. But the fact is that while he was in the promised land, now listen carefully, he's in the promised land. But he dwells within the promised land as a stranger. He did not say, this is my home. He said, I am a stranger here. Now, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 picks up on all this language about being a stranger and being a pilgrim in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews comes up with this conclusion that even if you are in the physical land of Canaan, the land that I will show you, even if you are actually there, after you arrive there, and if you say, I'm a stranger and I'm a pilgrim, then what you are declaring is that the promised land that you are in is not your final destiny. Otherwise, you wouldn't refer to yourself as a stranger. You wouldn't refer to yourself as a pilgrim. When I am at my home, I don't call myself, I'm a stranger in this place. I call it my home. Think of yourself sitting at the kitchen table in your own home. You would never refer to, I'm a stranger in this place. You would say, I'm home. But if you were to sit at my kitchen table, you might say, I'm a stranger. Now I'd say, you're welcome. But you would say, but it's not your possession. You know what I'm saying? And when they call themselves strangers, and they call themselves pilgrims, they were making a statement that whatever God promised, it's not this promised land. It is far bigger than any of that. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, is the evidence of things not seen. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who refer to themselves as strangers and pilgrims, all make a confession 
that the promised land is not their home. God's got something bigger in mind. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. Where it says, anybody who says such things are making a very plain statement that they're looking for something else. The physical promised land is not the ultimate inheritance. They're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. A city that has foundations. That's why they chose to live in tents, is because I don't belong here, and therefore I'm not putting my roots down in this place, because even though this is the promised land, I don't belong here, this is not my ultimate destiny, and I refuse to be tied to this place, because it's short of my destiny. I will just make do while I'm here. I will live in a tent, but I'm not going to invest my heart, I'm not going to invest my soul, I'm not going to invest my life in this place, because I'm leaving it all behind because my destiny is still ahead of me. I'm just a pilgrim and a stranger in this place. Now, this is the important thing. Because if we want to be used by God, we have to understand that our identity is not found in our past mistakes. Now, somebody should shout hallelujah at that. Our identity is not found in our past mistakes. Our identity is not wrapped up in what happened to me in the past. Our identity is not wrapped up in bad decisions I made and paid for those bad decisions. There's grace. Thank God there's grace. And my identity is not defined by the present circumstances you find me in today. I may live in a tent, but that's not my identity. I may have a physical problem, and I may never get healed of it. I may have to walk the rest of my life leaning on a staff, but my identity is not identified with a physical problem that I may have. My identity is this. I'm a pilgrim. And the end of the story of my life has not yet been told. But the end of my story is guaranteed. Come on. Come on. Listen. God swore my destiny with an oath. I know the end of the story. Have I ever told you that the end of the story is glory? That's my home. And that's my identity. It's not in my past. It's not in my mistakes. It's not in my foolishness. And it's not in my present circumstances. I am a pilgrim. The end of the story is the appearing of Jesus. The end of the story is not dying and going to heaven. The end of the story is a resurrected body. When mortal puts on immortality. When corruption puts on incorruption. When the weakness is exchanged for power. The end of the story is Christ coming to inherit His inheritance, but not without you and not without me. I'm a joint heir 
of the promises of God. I don't know how God does it, but He takes everything, even my dumb mistakes in life, and makes them work for good. My identity is not in my past. Neither is my identity in the future. But my identity is the end of the story, which is guaranteed. Now listen carefully. Because now go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Describing the past experience of the people who received this letter. If I was to read the second half of verse number 4. The first half is a little too controversial. So I won't discuss what it means impossible for those who were once enlightened. We'll just go to the other part. But it's talking about those who were once enlightened. That means... The power of God broke through to your conscience and you got saved. That's what it means. And it says you tasted. Mm. Tasted. Have you ever tasted something that was so good you just had to have more? Anybody? Amen? Tasted. What have you tasted? You've tasted of the heavenly gift. That means more to come if you've tasted it. Amen? And then it goes on, and we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. No, I like that. Made partakers of the Holy Ghost. I have this experience with the power of God in my life. I become a partaker. You see, oh, it goes on better. I've tasted. Come on, have a taste. You get addicted to this stuff. Have a taste. You come back wanting more. Having tasted the good word of God. That's why you like listening for hour after hour after hour. No. (laughs) Tasted the good word of God. It's done something for you. It's fed your soul. And you have also tasted the powers of the world to come. Do we understand what it means to be a partaker of the Holy Ghost? That means before you get to the end of your story, before you get to the end of your pilgrimage, you're allowed to have a foretaste of it. Then the mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost is a taste of what's going to happen when Jesus appears. You see, when Jesus appears, no matter how sickly this body of mine might have been for all the decades I've lived, it makes no difference. On that day, this mortal is putting on immortality. This corruption is putting on incorruption. That which is sown in weakness is raised in power. I'm going to be glorified. I don't know about you. But I'm going to go for the glorification. But so are you. I'm going to be glorified. And I am going to be suited for life in the heavens and in the whole universe. Not just limited to a pathetic, sinful planet earth. That's my future. But the baptism in the Holy Spirit allows you, while you're still in this world, to taste the power of the future. And it shows up in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
Because when you read in your Bible about gifts of healing, it's the same power, just a touch of the same power that you will experience on resurrection. It's a quickening. But it's not the full thing. It's a taste of it. When God gives you a word of knowledge, it's just a taste of the future day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. You just get to taste and experience a little bit. And here it is, by being made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, what you are doing is you are actually borrowing from your future inheritance and using that power of your future inheritance to bless people today. Are we catching that? Are we understanding the principle? Through the power of the Holy Ghost, you're taking your future inheritance and you're using it to bring blessing to people today. And that's the key. My identity is not in my past. If you judge me by my past, I'm out of here. I'm done. So are you. All of us are. My identity is not where I am today because you may look at me now and say, well, he's a little overweight. Or you might say, you know, look what he's done there, or look at that, or oh, he's got it. No. My identity is not there either. My identity is the end of the story. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a pilgrim. I don't belong here. Goodbye, world, goodbye, I'm leaving. There's something better coming. That's where my home is. That's where my identity is. And therefore, I have no interest. I am just not interested in soaking my entire life into something that's passing away. I'm living something for better something than this present world. And I'd rather suffer loss in this present world to gain there. I really would. I've made the decision. We both have made the decision. That's just how we're going to live. We're not investing in this world. Because it's not home. It's not my identity. I'm a pilgrim. You're a pilgrim. And if we understand ourselves as pilgrims, if we can get that conviction in our hearts, and understand about the Holy Spirit, is foretasting the powers of the world to come. It's experiencing the resurrection before the resurrection happens. You just can't die. No matter what happens in your life, you just keep getting up. And the world knocks you down, and the world knocks you down, and the world knocks you down. You just don't stay down. Because there's thing called resurrection life in you that just keeps getting you up and getting you up and getting you up. And there's this faith that keeps rising in you, just keeps getting up and it keeps getting up. You just can't die until God says you're going. I like that. That's tasting the powers of the world to come. That's where our identity is. And if you and I can grasp that and understand that, then when God lays out the future for us, and it's big, and you just need to understand He's going to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Our future is only limited 
by our limited imagination. But I believe God wants to do great things because we've demonstrated to Him He can trust us. But it's going to require faith on our part. But who can God use? And here's the important truth that I feel that needs to be shared here. Who can God use? I want you to take a moment and look at your past. I want you to think about all the mistakes you've made in life. For some of us, that might do more thinking than others. I don't know. But think, think about all what's happened in your past. And I want you to think of how you have limited yourself by either things that have happened to you or decisions that you've made yourself. So you're on your second marriage. So you're on your third marriage. So you have children that you messed up with. Think about it. Don't pick your identity out of that. That's all forgivable. That's all forgiven. And the grace of God is greater than any of that stuff. Amen? Greater than any of that stuff. Don't limit your future by meditating upon your past. Now take a moment to think of your present circumstance. Are you struggling with health? Are you struggling with finances? Are you struggling with a variety of issues? Again, I would exhort you, don't go into your future embracing the present. Your identity is not in your present. You're on a journey. And as you're on this journey, God's going to make everything work together for good. Everything. So I declare that no matter what your past has been, and I declare no matter what your present may be, even in your weakness, even you can go in and bless Pharaoh. Amen. Even you can go in and bless Pharaoh. If you're sick in your body and you've got to walk on with a leaning on a staff and you're dragging a lame foot behind you because it's out of joint, and that's how you have to walk, that's not going to stop you from going in to bless Pharaoh. Because you have something that Pharaoh does not have. You might not have as good a health as Pharaoh. You might not have as nice a home as Pharaoh. You might never live in a palace, probably never will. You may have sickness in your body, and you may have the effects of a bad marriage following you around for life. That doesn't matter. I repeat myself, that doesn't matter. I wish you were here to hear this. That doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Come on. Doesn't matter. 
I repeat it. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the end of your story is not yet finished, though it is guaranteed. The end of the story is glory, and you're going through this life as a pilgrim. And because of your relationship with God, you borrow from your future in the power of the Holy Ghost. And while you're sick in your own body, you're still blessing this world. So when God opens the doors of missions to us around the world, which I pray He does, when God opens the doors to us of outreach in this city and to this nation that we live in, He's going to use people who have not yet arrived but who know what the end of their story is. And there is nobody in this room who is disqualified. Come on. There is nobody in this room who is disqualified, no matter what your past or your present is. Nobody who is disqualified. So don't count yourself out. Don't count yourself out. Because God plans on stretching you to fulfill His heart and His burden that He's going to continually, by His Holy Spirit, unveil to us and reveal to us. He's going to use you. No excuse works. Did you know that? No excuse works. Because your identity is not your present or your past. Your identity is that you're a pilgrim going to the end of the story. That's where your home is. And that is where the power is to be used of God while we are in the midst of weakness ourselves. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.